Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. We continue our fall sermon series thinking about forgiveness. And forgiveness may seem a little bit different than what we think of on an average day. We will look at four elements to full biblical forgiveness. You're listening to Forgive One Another by Reverend Peter Yonker. I have to begin today's uh, sermon or my talk with you with an apology, which is maybe appropriate to the theme of the day. Um, I put, midweek I changed my sermon text and I forgot to put it in the bulletin. So if you've already opened it to Colossians, I'm sorry about that. That's a fine text. You should read it. But the correct Bible text is Ephesians 4 verses 29 through 32. Ephesians 4, 29 through 32, which is on page 1819 in your pew Bibles. So please forgive me for that. The, um, as you know, if you are a member and if you're a visitor, maybe you don't know, we are in the middle of a fall series on the one and others. Throughout the New Testament, the Holy Spirit urges the church, urges us people to practice certain virtues and habits with one another that keep us together as the body of Christ. And today's one another is forgiveness. Listen to Paul's words from Ephesians. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now here's the center of my text, and I see in 31 and 32, uh, Paul holding up two different frames of how we can look at the world. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, and every form of malice. Instead, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. So today's one another, I think it's fair to say, is a particular significance. Obviously, all the one another's are important, but this one another stands out. And I think it stands out because it addresses uh, the deepest breaks in human community. For instance, we talked about forbearance a couple weeks ago, and we said we practice forbearance, we bear with each other when we deal with each other's annoying habits and irksome idiosyncrasies. That's important, forbearance. Forgiveness goes beyond that, because when when we forgive someone, we're not just dealing with their annoyances, we are dealing with a person who has sinned against us and wounded us. So we're not just annoyed by them, we are their victims. So forgiveness is a practice, a tool, which deals with the deepest tears in the fabric of community. And that explains, I think, why Scripture, and especially Jesus, talks about forgiveness so much. All the one another's are pushed towards us, but if you read the Bible, it's very clear that forgiveness is pushed especially hard. Jesus pushes forgiveness. Christy read that parable earlier. You remember how that parable began. Peter comes to Jesus and says, well, how many times do I have to forgive someone who sins against me? And Jesus says, 77 times or seven times 70, which essentially means you never stop. You just keep doing it. And then there are these two verses, which I'm I'm, I'm betting that many of you don't know. In the Sermon on the Mount, 
Right after Jesus teaches the Lord's Prayer, which of course has the petition, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, has forgiveness in it. Jesus finishes teaching it and immediately he emphasizes the forgiveness portion of the prayer when he says these things to his disciples. If you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. If you don't forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive you. If you do forgive, you'll be forgiven. If you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. Jesus said it, Matthew 6, 14 and 15. You can look it up. That sounds, that's a tough saying, right? It sounds like forgive or else. However you understand it, it's very clear here and in many other places that Jesus is saying, forgive people. I'm serious about this. This is really, really important. Do it. You need to be people of forgiveness. So what exactly is this practice that is so important to Jesus that he's pushing towards us? What does it mean to forgive each other? It's not a simple question as you think, because if you listen to the talk these days, there's a lot of difference in how we understand what it means to actually forgive. On December 1, 1997, Michael Carneal, a 14-year-old freshman at Heath High School in Paducah, Kentucky, came to school with three loaded guns, disguised as an art project. And when he came into the front lobby, he took out one of those guns and started shooting at a group of kids who were gathered in a prayer circle. He killed three of them and wounded five and upended those families' lives forever and left trauma in the lives of all the kids at Heath High School that day. You may remember this story. It certainly made national news. What also made national news is two days later, some of the students, and these were students who knew the kids in the prayer group, made signs and put them out front of the school. And these signs were forgiveness signs. We forgive you, Michael. Jesus forgives you. You are loved. They made national news as well. They were interviewed on ABC, and, and many people who looked at what they did and those signs said, what wonderful kids. They're full of strength and full of grace. They thought it was great. Not everyone thought it was great. Some people were appalled by what those girls did. And one of those who was appalled wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal called The Sin of Forgiveness. And this is what he said. I'm appalled and frightened by this feel-good doctrine of automatic forgiveness. Automatic forgiveness. This doctrine undermines the moral foundation of American civilization because it advances the amoral notion that no matter how much you hurt people, millions of your fellow citizens will automatically forgive you. The author worries that the forgiveness that these girls were offering is just too easy. It doesn't account for sin. We've got to account for sin. We've got to fight evil. We've got to hold people accountable, says the author of that article. Is that correct? Is the writer of a point? Rachel Den Hollander might agree that the author of that article has a point. You know who Rachel Den Hollander is? She was one of Larry Nassar's victims. 
So when she was a young teen, she was a gymnast, she was one of the ones abused by Larry Nasser, who abused dozens and dozens of girls, as you know. And when Nasser was finally caught, and when he was tried, and when he was convicted, at the sentencing hearing, Rachel Den Hollander read a very powerful victim impact statement, which you can still find online. And in that statement, she wrestles with issues of forgiveness because Larry Nasser had been coming to the courtroom with his Bible and had been talking about how he prayed for forgiveness for what he'd done. Here's what Rachel said in her victim impact statement in response to what she saw in Larry Nasser. Larry, you spoke of praying for forgiveness. But Larry, if you've read the Bible that you carry, and she's, she's a deeply Christian person, I should make that clear. If you read the Bible that you carry, you know that forgiveness does not come from doing good things, as if good deeds can erase what you have done. It comes from repentance, which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you've done in all of its utter depravity and horror without mitigation and without excuse. She went on at the end of her statement to ask the judge to give Larry Nasser the maximum sentence under the law. Was that unforgiving of her to ask for that? What does forgiveness look like? What are we doing when we forgive another person? Part of the confusion in our society about what forgiveness is and what forgiveness isn't is the way we use the word. I think we use the word about different things sometimes. Um, for instance, when those girls put those signs up in front of Heath High School in Paducah, Kentucky, they were trying to say something, right? And I think what they were trying to say was something important. I think the Wall Street Journal op-ed goes a little bit far to say that they were immoral and that, that civilization is threatened by this. I, I think they were trying to do something important. They were trying to say, we don't want hate to win here. We don't want evil to win here. We, we're people of love. We're not people of revenge. We, we believe in the possibility of redemption. We believe that good can overcome evil. That's what those forgiveness signs meant. They were a sign of a merciful inclination in the hearts of those students, which is absolutely a good thing. Sometimes we see that merciful inclination in someone else's heart, and the name we give for that inclination, that instinct, is forgiveness. And that's okay, I suppose, to call that instinct forgiveness, but it's confusing because biblically, Forgiveness is more than just an inclination. That inclination is an essential part of forgiveness, but the whole of biblical forgiveness, as it's described in the whole of Scripture and the practice that Ephesians 4 is calling to us, is much more than simply an inclination. That's what Rachel Den Hollander is after in her victim impact statement. Biblical forgiveness is not just an inclination. It is a practice, a process, a long and sacrificial road that aims at justice and reconciliation and takes discipline and time. What are the elements of this longer process? Whenever you preach on forgiveness, and I want to sort of make it clear what forgiveness is, that's the goal of the sermon. There's two ways you can go. You can tell lots of inspiring stories. And there are lots of great forgiveness stories, and they're fun to tell. But I'm going the other way in this sermon. 
I, I want to be more of a lecture and I want to give you the elements of forgiveness because I think intellectual clarity on this issue is important. So bear with me. This is more of a lecture, less of a story. Four elements to full biblical forgiveness. First, Christian forgiveness has that inclination towards mercy. So those, the thing that those girls were doing with their signs, that is an absolutely essential part of forgiveness, an inclination towards mercy. And that has to do with the way that we frame people. When someone sins against us, especially if that sin is grievous, it's very easy to start to look at that person, to frame that person in terms of what they did to us. So when we see them, the first thing we think of is that wound, that sin. What those girls are trying to say, and I, I think what Scripture calls us to, is we are people of grace and mercy. Our frame of looking at the world is always going to be grace and mercy. It's going to be faith, hope, and love. And Scripture says this over and over again in different ways. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Overcome evil with good. Turn the other cheek. Leave vengeance to God over and over again. Our frame of looking at others is grace. That doesn't mean we ignore the sin, but the sin does not become the frame. The frame is the mercy, the grace. And Jesus in Scripture calls us to have this frame because that's how God looks at us. God does not treat us as our sins deserve. How many times does Scripture say that? He does not look at us according to our sin. He looks at us according to his mercy. And he does that even before we respond in any way or show any kind of remorse whatsoever. Romans 5 verse 8. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5 10. While we're God's enemies, we were reconciled. So even while we're still in full rebellion and literally spitting in his face, while God is still angry with us for our sins, and he is angry. His frame for us, even in his anger, is mercy. In fact, the anger comes from his mercy, but that's the subject for a different sermon. Okay? And this is essential to the character of God, and it's not just a New Testament thing, it's an Old Testament thing too. Do you remember Exodus 34? When Moses sees God on the mountain, he wants to see God's face. God only shows him his back. And when Moses puts into words what he sees when he sees God's back, he says this. The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. That inclination towards mercy is absolutely the center of who God is. And because it's the center of who God is, and because it's the center of why we are forgiven and saved in Jesus, because he looked at us this way, of course that same frame must live in us as we look at each other. That inclination towards mercy is absolutely essential for us to pay the price, to be willing to make the sacrifices that it takes to work forgiveness. That's first part. Second, Forgiveness needs more than a merciful inclination. It needs judgment. That's the part of forgiveness that Rachel Den Hollander is so concerned about. Forgiveness cannot just absorb sin into this sort of penumbra of mercy, right? 
It needs judgment. Sin needs to be accounted for. It needs to be reckoned, to use a biblical word. It needs to be dealt with. It needs judgment. And there's two parts of the judgment portion of forgiveness. First is discernment. What is this sin that was committed? Why was it sinful? What was going on in the heart of the person who committed the sin to make them commit this sin? What went wrong inside them? What was the context that led them to do this? And what damage did it do? Who did it hurt? How did it hurt them? How deep is the hurt and how can we fix it? You need all that deep discernment as part of the judgment. And forgiveness includes that because that's exactly how Jesus forgives us. When you meet Jesus, you will meet someone who has mercy as his primary frame. But that does not mean that he just sort of absorbs your sin into this general haze. He doesn't say, hey there, you rascal. I know you're a little bit spunky sometimes, but hey, we all make mistakes. So come on, bring it in and let's hug it out. When you meet Jesus, and you will meet Jesus, he will look at you with piercing discernment. His discernment will see past all your masks. His discernment will see past every one of your flimsy excuses. His discernment will overturn every single one of your self-deceptions, and it will unearth all of your secrets. Do you remember what the woman at the well said? After she met Jesus, she ran and told her friends, come and meet the man who told me everything I ever did. Discernment. And it may be scary to have someone look at you with that kind of discernment, but the reason he's looking at you with that kind of discernment is because he wants to see all of your sin and he wants to uproot every last bit of it. The first part of judgment is discernment. The second part of judgment is confrontation. Once the sin has been discerned, it needs to be confronted. It needs to be named. The person who sinned needs to know what they did and how they hurt and how much they hurt. And that too is God's way in scripture, right? Whether it's the Old Testament prophets confronting Israel with their sin or Jesus telling one of those difficult parables of judgment, God does not only discern the sin, he confronts it. And that's what we're called to as well. Which brings us to the third component of forgiveness. Full Christian forgiveness requires repentance, sincere repentance. So far as I've described the first two stages, you'll notice that most of the work is done by the person who has sinned against. Right? Inclination towards mercy, that's the person who sinned against. A lot of the judgment, confrontation, that's the person who sinned against. Now we're getting to the work that has to be done by the person who committed the sin. That person must know what they've done, must name it, must acknowledge it, and must so show sorrow for it. They must confess it with sincerity, with sorrow, and with specificity. Specificity is important. Here's where the process of forgiveness so often breaks down. Someone finally gets confronted with their sin, and what they say is, okay, I did it. I, I admit that I did it. Now that I admit it, let's, let's just move on. Can we just go back to the way things used to be? And if you're a little bit hesitant to go back to things that used to be, they say, well, Jesus calls you to forgive. I admitted it. I confess. Come on. Forgiveness, repentance needs to be more than just general. It needs to be specific. 
needs to be sorrowful, and it needs to be sincere. And this too follows the practice of Scripture. Think of David's confession in Psalm 51, right? Psalm 51 is essentially a long confession and article of repentance after David has committed adultery with Bathsheba. It is sincere, it is sorrowful, it is specific. Jesus, when he preaches, calls for repentance. Peter, in Acts 2 at Pentecost, repent, be baptized. In the story, the parable of the prodigal son, if the prodigal son had come home and the father had run out to embrace him and kiss him and welcome him home, if the prodigal, instead of repenting as he does in the parable, if he'd said, well, thanks, Dad. When's dinner? You know, it wasn't easy for me to come home. You really messed me up with the way you raised me. This is mostly your fault. Do you think if that's what the prodigal had said, that the father still would have killed the fatted calf and thrown a party? Full forgiveness aims at reconciliation and restoration. But without repentance, that reconciliation cannot happen and should not happen. Which brings us to the fourth and final component of forgiveness, and that is restitution and reconciliation. Once the sinner has repented, admitted what they've done, done so sincerely and from the heart, the sinner, insofar as it is possible, must try to make amends. Whenever we sin against another person, we create damage. And some of the damage that we create when we sin cannot be fixed, right? Not by a human. A father is a workaholic as a young man, and as his kids are growing up, he's just never there. He's always at work. He's always doing his stuff. And his daughter is profoundly damaged by that, really wounded. But she never says anything until she's in her early 20s. She finally comes to dad and says, you really hurt me. Dad can't fix that. I mean, he can't go back and give her her childhood again. But he can try to make amends. There are things he can do to repay, to make restitution. He can send a text every day. He can call her regularly. He can try to fly out there to see her if she'll have him. He can offer to pay for the therapy if that's what it's come to. There are things you can do to make amends and over time as you make these Acts of restitution, trust is restored and reconciliation happens in its fullness. And this too is the biblical pattern. Zacchaeus, confronted by Jesus in the tree, Jesus goes to eat at his house. We don't know what was said, but at the end, Zacchaeus confesses what he's done. And do you remember what he says? He says, I will repay everything I stole, everybody I stole from four times what I stole, and I'll give half my money to the poor. He makes amends, and Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. Those are the four stages. In a broken world, forgiveness rarely has all four of those elements. And I think you all know, on the ground, as people who've tried to forgive or who have been on the other end and have tried to offer repentance, this process breaks down at all kinds of parts. Sometimes the merciful frame isn't there. Sometimes the repentance is sort of half-hearted, and so reconciliation never happens. It's really hard to walk this road all the way to the end. But when we try, when we walk this way, we are walking 
in line with the Spirit. Which brings me to the last thing I want to say. When Jesus calls us to forgive, he's not holding up some sort of standard and saying, okay, you human beings, on your own strength, go achieve this standard. He's just calling us to be what has already been put in us. Forgiveness, we are in Christ because that forgiving rhythm has started in us through the death and resurrection of Jesus and through the power of his Holy Spirit. So to forgive each other is just to live as the Spirit is indwelling us. And I think that's how to understand those really hard words from Matthew 6 about if you forgive, I'll forgive. If you don't forgive, I won't forgive. I don't think Jesus is saying forgive or else. I think what he is saying is forgiveness is the heart of this thing, people. It's how you became restored to me. It's what the Spirit is putting in you. It's, it's the dance we're dancing. It's the song we're singing. And, and if you're not singing that song and dancing that dance, I, I don't know what to tell you. You're on a different dance floor. I mean, if you want to get on the dance floor of those other things in Ephesians 4, malice, bitterness, anger, strife, if you want, if you want to be on that dance floor, I don't want, you, it's not my dance floor. This is my way. When you forgive, you're walking in my way. You're on the floor singing my song. So people of God, Jesus says to you, don't give in to your fear. Don't give in to your resentment. Take my hand, says Jesus, and let my mercy fill you. Let his grace be your food. Let my hope be your horizon. Let your forgiveness, my forgiveness, be your song. Because when it is, my name will be glorified and you will be changed together. Amen. Lord, you know how on the ground forgiveness can be so hard for us, whether we're the ones who've been hurt or whether we're the ones who've done the hurting. You know how deep those wounds are and how hard it is for us to practice this craft. Thank you that as we stand beneath the cross, we can know ourselves forgiven. Thank you that in the Holy Spirit, we know that that spirit is in our heart, is enabling us to do more than we could ask or imagine. So Lord, as, as we go from this place, give us the courage to follow this path and to be people of forgiveness. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Grave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.